Section 3 of The Court and Character of King James, whereunto is now added The Court of King Charles, by Anthony Weldon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Court of King James, Part 2 The King was a peaceable, merciful prince, yet God, for some secret intent best known to himself, laid the foundation of his reign with the greatest mortality ever before heard of in this kingdom by a fearful plague. And some by that judged what his future reign would be, yet their wisdoms failed, for he was a king of mercy as well as peace, never cruel, yet surely it had some moral. He was forced by that contagion to leave the metropolis and go into a by-corner in Wiltshire, Wilton, the Earl of Pembroke's house, in which time of his abode there a kind of treason break forth. But what it was, as no man could then tell, so it is left with so dark a comment that posterity will never understand the text or remember any such treason. It is true, some lost their lives, yet the world was never satisfied of the justice, and one of them, and that the only mark of tyranny upon this good king's reign, executed many years after, without all precedent, and on my conscience without any just cause, and even against that good king's will, who in many things was overawed by his timorous disposition. But the Spanish faction and Spanish gold betrayed his life, as they had done the kingdom before, and I believe it was one of the greatest masterpieces of that ambassador to purchase Raleigh's head. Yet had not Bristol cooperated, the king would never have consented, and it may be he had his secret ends, fearing his wisdom might once again have raised him, to have looked over Sherborne Castle, once his own, and how unjustly taken from him God will one day judge. I know not whether there be a curse on those that are owners of it, as fables report, but I am confident there is a curse on Bristol for taking away his life. I will not take upon me too far to pry into God's ark, Yet what is like to befall him, and hath already, his son, as hopeful a gentleman as any in the kingdom, may give some token of God's anger against him and his family. But because I will not leave you altogether blindfolded, I shall as near as I can lead you to the discovery of this treason, which consisted of Protestants, Puritans, Papists, and of an atheist. A strange medley, you will say, to meet in one of the same treason and keep counsel which surely they did because they knew not of any. The Protestants were the Lord Cobham and George Brooke his brother, the one very learned and wise, the other a most silly lord. The Puritan, the Lord Grey of Wilton, a very hopeful gentleman, blasted in the very bud. The Papists, Watson and Clark, priests. And Parham, a gentleman. The Atheist, Sir Walter Raleigh, then generally so believed though after brought by affliction the best schoolmistress to be, and so died, a most religious gentleman. This treason was compounded of strange ingredients, and more strange than true. It was very true most of these were discontented to see Salisbury their old friend so high, to trample on them that before had been his chief supporters, and, being ever of his faction, now neglected and contemned, it was then believed an errant trick of state to overthrow some and disable others, knowing their strong abilities might otherwise live to overthrow Salisbury, for they were intimate in all his secret counsels for the ruin of Essex, especially Raleigh, Grey, and Cobbett, 
though the latter was a fool, yet had been very useful to them, as the tool in the hand of the workman, and to have singled out these without some priests, which were traitors by the law, had smelt too rank, and appeared too poor and plain a trick of state. And Salisbury in this had a double benefit. First, in ridding himself of such as he feared would have been thorns in his sides. Secondly, by endearing himself to the king by showing his diligence and vigilancy for his safety, so that it might be said of him as of Caesar in another case, in veniam aut sacian, I will either find out a treason or make one. And this had been a pretty trick had it been only to disgrace without taking away life. But how this piece of policy may stand with religion, I fear by this time he too well understands. And this plot, as near as I can tell you, and I dare say my intelligence gave me as near a guess as ever any man had, was that all these in a discontented humour had, by Watson and Clark being confessors, dealt with Count Aremberg, the Archduke's ambassador, to negotiate with the Archduke to raise an army and invade England, and they would raise another of papists and malcontents to join. For you must understand the king was believed in arrant Puritan, Cuius contrarium verimest. How likely this plot was, let the world judge, that the king of Spain, who had bought peace at so dear a rate and found it so advantageous to him by the lamentable experience he had formerly in the wars with this formidable state, should seek to break it so soon. And had it been a real treason, the state had been bound to have rewarded these traitors as the best piece of service done in England all that king's reign. It was indeed those that made the peace, not those that endeavoured the breaking of it were the traitors, and are to be cursed by all posterity. Yet this foolish plot served well enough to take some blocks out of the way that might afterward have made some of them stumble to the breaking of their own necks. They were all arraigned of treason at Winchester, whither the king, having sent some secretly to observe all passages, upon whose true and faithful relations of the innocences of the persons arraigned, and the slight proofs upon which they were condemned, he would not be drawn to sign any warrant for the execution of Raleigh, Cobham, and Grey, very hardly for any of the rest, the two priests excepted. For Raleigh's defence, it was so brave and just, as had he not wilfully cast himself out of very weariness as unwilling to detain the company longer, no jury could ever have cast him. All the evidence brought against him was Cobham's accusation, which he only desired might appear viva voce, and he would yield without further defence, but that they knew full well Cobham would not, nor could not accuse him, having been tampered with by Wade, then lieutenant of the tower and Salisbury's great preacher. Wade desired it under his hand, but also he refused. At last Wade got a trick by his cunning to surprise Cobham's weakness to get him to write his name to a blank, to which Wade no question wrote the accusation, as will appear hereafter. For Salisbury urging Raleigh often, if Cobham had accused him under his hand, would he then yield? Raleigh replied, he knew Cobham weak of judgment, and did not know how that weakness might be wrought upon, but was confident he would not to his face accuse him, and therefore would not put his life, fortune and all on that at which fence he stood till nine at night. At last his fate carried him against his reason, and he yielded upon the producing his hand, which was instantly pulled out, and was in truth his hand, 
but not his act or deed. So at that present was George Brooke, Watson and Clark executed, Parham acquitted, and Sir Walter Raleigh executed many years after for the same treason, as much against all justice as beyond all reason or any precedent. Yea, after he had been a general by the king's commission, and had by that power of the lives of many others, utterly against the civil law, which saith, He that hath power of the lives of others ought to be master of his own. But the Spaniard was so powerful at that time in court, as that faction could command the life of any man that might prove dangerous to his designs. Gray and Cobham died in their restraint, the one much pitied, the other scorned, and his death as base. For he died lousy for want of apparel and linen, and had starved had not a trencher scraper, sometime his servant in court, relieved him with scraps, in whose house he died, being so poor a house as he was forced to creep up a ladder into a little hole to his chamber, which was a strange judgment and unprecedented, that a man of seven thousand pounds per annum, and of a personal estate of thirty thousand pounds, of all which the king was so cheated of what should have escheated to him, that he could not give him any maintenance, as in all cases the king doth, unless out of his own revenue of the crown, which was the occasion of this lord's want. His wife, being very rich, would not give him the crumbs that fell from her table. And this was a just judgment of God on him. And now, because it will be pertinent in this place to let you understand that Raleigh had his life surreptitiously taken away, I shall give you a true story. Queen Anne, that brave princess, was in a desperate, and some believed an incurable, disease, whereof the physicians were at the furthest end of their studies to find the cause, at a non-plus for the cure. Sir Walter Raleigh, being by his long studies an admirable chemist, undertook and performed the cure for which he would receive no other reward, but that Her Majesty would procure that certain lords might be sent to examine Cobham, whether he had accused Sir Walter Raleigh of treason at any time under his hand. The King, at the Queen's request, and injustice could do no less, sends six lords, which I take were the Duke of Lennox, Salisbury, Worcester, Suffolk, Sir George Carew, and Sir Julius Caesar, to demand of Cobham whether he had not under his hand accused Sir Walter Raleigh at Winchester, upon that treason he was arraigned for. Cobham did protest, never, nor could he. But, said he, that villain Wade did often solicit me, and not prevailing that way, got me by a trick to write my name upon a piece of white paper, which I, thinking nothing, did, so that if any charge came under my hand it was forged by that villain Wade, by writing something above my hand without my consent or knowledge. These six returning to the king, the rest made Salisbury their spokesman, who said, Sir, my lord Cobham hath made good all that ever he wrote or said. Where it is to be noted that this was but an equivocating trick in Salisbury, for it was true that Cobham had made good whatever he had writ, that being but in truth to very nothing, but never wrote he anything to accuse Raleigh. By which you may see the baseness of these lords, the credulity of the king, and the ruin of Sir Walter Raleigh. I appeal now to the judgment of all the world whether these six lords were not the immediate murderers of Sir Walter Raleigh, and no question shall be called to a sad account for it. 
and thus have you a true relation of the treason and traitors, with all the windings and turnings in it, and all passages appertaining to it. And by it you may see the slavery these great men were enslaved in by Salisbury, that none durst testify such a truth as the not testifying lost their most precious souls. And now doth the king return to Windsor, where there was only an apparition of Southampton's being a favourite to his majesty, by that privacy and dearness was presented to the court view. But Salisbury, liking not that any of Essex's faction should come into play, made that apparition appear, as it were, intransitive, and so vanished, by putting some jealousies into the king's head, who was so far from jealousy, that he did not much desire to be in his queen's company, yet love and regality must admit of no partnership. Then was there, in requital of the Spanish ambassadors, two stately embassies addressed, the one to Spain, the other to the Archduke, to have that peace they so dearly purchased, confirmed, and sworn to by ours, as formerly by them. The old Lord Admiral was sent to Spain, the Earl of Hertford for Brussels, that the Duke of Lennox might have the better opportunity. The Spaniard was astonished at the braveness of our embassy, and the handsome gentleman, in both which few embassies ever equalled this, for you must understand the Jesuits reported our nation to be ugly, and like devil, as a punishment sent to our nation for casting off the Pope's supremacy, and they pictured Sir Francis Drake generally half a man, half a dragon. When they beheld them after the shape of angels, they could not well tell whether to trust their own eyes or their confessor's reports, yet they then appeared to them, as to all the world, monstrous liars. The ambassador had his reception with as much state as his entertainment with bounty, the king defraying all charges, and they were detained at their landing longer than ordinary to have provisions prepared in their passage to Madrid, with all the bounty it was possible to make the whole country appear a land of Canaan, which was in truth but a wilderness. In their abode there, although they gave them roast meat, yet they beat them with the spits by reporting that the English did steal all the plate when in truth it was themselves who thought to make hay while the sun shined, not thinking ever more to come to such a feast, to fill their purses as well as their bellies, for food and coin are equally alike scarce with that nation. This report passed for current to the infinite dishonour of our nation, there being at that time the prime gallantry of our nation. Sir Robert Mansell, who was a man born to vindicate the honour of his nation as of his own, being vice-admiral, and a man on whom the old admiral wholly relied, having dispatched the ships to be gone the next morning, came in very late to supper. Sir Richard Levison, sitting at the upper end of the table amongst the grandees, the admiral himself not supping that night, being upon the dispatch of letters, the table, upon Sir Robert Mansell's entrance, offered to rise to give him place. But he sat down instantly at the lower end, and would not let any man stir, and falling to his meat, did espy a Spaniard, as the dish is emptied, ever putting some in his bosom, some in his breeches, but they both strutted. Sir Robert Mansell sent a message to the upper end of the table to Sir Richard Levison to be delivered in his ear, that whatsoever he saw him do, he should desire the gentlemen and grandees to sit quiet, for there should be no cause of any disquiet. On the sudden, Sir Robert Mansell steps up, takes his Spaniard in his arms, at which the table began to rise, Sir Richard Levis quiets them. 
brings him up to the end amongst the grandees, then pulls out the plate from his bosom breeches and every part about him, which did so amaze the Spaniard, and vindicate that aspersion cast on our nation, that never after was there any such syllable heard, but all honour done to the nation, and all thanks to him in particular. From thence, next day, they went for Madrid, where all the royal entertainment Spain could yield was given them. And at the end of the grand entertainment and revels which held most part of the night, as they were all returning to their lodgings, the street being made light by white wax lights, and the very night forced into a day by shining light, as they were passing in the street, a Spaniard catcheth off Sir Robert Mansell's hat, with a very rich jewel in it, and away he flies. Sir Robert, not being of a spirit to have anything violently taken from him, nor of such a court-like compliment, to part with a jewel of that price to one no better acquainted with him, hurls open the booth, follows after the fellow, and some three gentlemen did follow him, to secure him, houseth the fellow in the house of an allegozi, which is a great officer or judge in Spain. This officer, wondering at the manner of their coming, the one without his hat and sword in his hand, the other with all their swords, demands the cause. They tell him. He saith, Surely none can think this house a sanctuary who is to punish such offenders. But Sir Robert Mansell would not be so put off with his Spanish gravity, but enters the house, leaving two at the gate to see that none should come out whilst he searched. A long while they could find nothing, and the Alagozi urging this as an affront. At last, looking down into a well of a small depth, he saw the fellow stand up to the neck in water. Sir Robert Mansell seized on his hat and jewel, leaving the fellow to the Alagozi, but he had much rather have fingered the jewel, and in his gravity told Sir Robert Mansell he could not have it without form of law, which Sir Robert dispensed with, carrying away his hat and jewel, and never heard further of the business. Now the truth was, this fellow knew his borough well enough, as well as some thieves of our nation, after they have done a robbery, would put themselves into a prison of their acquaintance, assuring themselves none would search there, or rather, as our recorders of London, whose chief revenue for themselves and servants is from thieves, whores, and boards. Therefore this story cannot seem strange in England. The other ambassador sent to the Archduke was the old Earl of Hertford, who was conveyed over in one of the King's ships by Sir William Munson, in whose passage a Dutch man-of-war coming by that ship would not veil, as the manner was, acknowledging by that our sovereignty over the sea. Sir William Munson gave him a shot to instruct him in manners, but instead of learning he taught him by returning another. He acknowledged no such sovereignty. This was the very first indignity and affront ever offered to the royal ships of England, which since have been most frequent. Sir William Monson desired my lord of Hertford to go into the hold, and he would instruct him by stripes, that refused to be taught by fair means. But the earl charged him on his allegiance, first to land him on whom he was appointed to attend, so to his great regret he was forced to endure that indignity, for which I have often heard him wish he had been hanged, rather than live that unfortunate commander of the king's ship to be chronicled for the first that ever endured that affront, although it was not in his power to have helped it. Yet by his favour it appeared but a copy of his countenance, for it had been but hazarding hanging to have disobeyed my lord's commandment, and it had been infinite odds he had not been hanged, having to friend him the house of Suffolk, nor would he have been so sensible of it had he not been of the Spanish faction, and that a Dutch ship. 
End of section three.